Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by three guests. I'm joined by Mary Harrington, who is a columnist at Unheard. I'm joined by Louise Perry, who is a columnist at The New Statesman and also author of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, and that is out next year. And we are also joined by the anonymous default friend who we're going to call DF for this call. Uh, DF, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. That's a pleasure. And Mary is here at The Spectator. Mary, you've written a brilliant cover piece for the latest edition of Spectator World, the June edition, and it's about the sexual counter-revolution. And as far as I know, people have talked about or expected there to be a sexual counter-revolution pretty much since the sexual revolution happened, and that there would be a kind of puritanical reaction to free love. And you think this is finally happening Can you tell us a little bit about why you think it's happening, how it's manifesting itself and so on? I think perhaps the precipitating factor, at least I argue in the piece that the precipitating factor that's really accelerated the coming reaction, which I've done my best to describe in the piece, is the internet, which has accelerated a number of social changes which have been been radical, but which had been tolerable up until that point, but which have now been accelerated to a point where actually they are radically undermining social and particularly sexual relations to a point where the impact is now discernible in ordinary life. I think there's been a lot of talk recently in the United States about the collapsing birth rate, which has been again accelerated over the course of coronavirus. I think I believe it's it's fallen 19% since the last peak in 2007 and is now at about 1.64 children per adult woman, yes, which well, is well, uh, well below replacement rate. And there was some expectation that the opposite might happen because people being locked in together might have more babies, but that doesn't seem to have That does not happened. seem to have happened. Yeah. And so although, although young people report that economics is a major consideration in, in their reluctance to form families and, and get on with having children, my argument here is that that's not the only thing which is going on. And that if you look at the history of the sexual revolution, well, I took a step right back from the 1960s to point out that, in fact, it's not the first attempt at a sexual revolution. In fact, there were several, several efforts, one in the 1920s and again in the early 19th century. People had a go at free love, mm. but it's always, it always came up against the insuperable obstacle of women getting pregnant. Yes. You know, obviously, you know, women are not just going to jump into bed willy-nilly with anybody because, you know, the, 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 risk, is, the, the risk is considerably greater for women than for men. Of, of being left with lifelong consequences. Yes, and so birth control birth, so, changed so, everything. So birth control changed everything. Yeah. And that, that was the first major revolution. You know, suddenly it was possible for women to have uncomplicated or apparently consequence-free sexual relations on the same terms as men. 
but but what I what I've argued here is that in fact what resulted from that was not what the feminists and the hippies imagined. They they imagined a sort of utopia of free love and polymorphous sensuous exploration in which we could all be free to be whomever and and do whoever we wanted. But in fact, what's happened was that the moment sex was uncoupled from babies, it was promptly reordered to commerce. Yes. And that that's, that's something which has accelerated gradually over the course of the last few decades since the sexual revolution. And of course, you know, history doesn't all happen at once. You know, the, the state of sexual liberation in, you know, small town Kansas is not going to be the same as it is in, in midtown Manhattan. And so, you know, history, history is unevenly distributed, as William Gibson once said. Yeah. And it's taken a while for, for these changes to percolate out. And they, are, they have now, they're well and truly percolated and rapid, rapidly accelerated since the beginning of the noughties by the internet. Well, and I also think something that comes out in your piece is that the internet has exposed how different attitudes are to sex between the sexes yes i mean this isn't in your piece but if you remember the adultery site ashley madison was it called yes well certainly it seems to have brought out the worst in both the sexes in in some ways that if you if you don't hold to the view that men and women are essentially the same yes which is the sort of the, the standard feminist orthodoxy these days but if you if you have eyes and a functioning brain i think it's very clear that that's that's not in fact the case yes. i know this is something that louise argues in her book that in fact you if it's pretty well documented that there are when, at least when it comes to sexuality some fairly some fairly consistent differences yes. between men and women and certainly those are those facets of human nature which you know tend to get written off as stereotypes yes. and as negative and constraining stereotypes within liberal feminism you know, really come to the fore when you look at something like online pornography where really it's you know it's not it's not it's not young men who are who are performing it's young women yes. because it's 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 women who men want to look at particularly yes. young women sometimes really quite repulsively young women and you mentioned OnlyFans, which is yes. 90% paid for by, or 95% paid for by men yes. and exactly. provided by, exactly. by women. Exactly, yeah. OnlyFans has millions of subscribers, almost all of whom are men. Yes. And it has, it has a very large number and rapidly growing over the course of the pandemic number of contributors, yes. um, the vast majority of whom are women. Louise, I'll, I'll bring you in here because your book is about the sexual counter-revolution. Do you think it's happening in the same way that Mary does? From what you've said on Twitter, I think you have slightly different ideas about it. I, I mean, I think we're, we are mostly of one mind on this issue. At this point, there's so much speculation. That's really all that we can do because I, I don't think that you can necessarily divine a significant shift in terms of any data and so on. What we're, what we're doing is sort of try, trying to test the cultural waters a little bit. And Mary and I and, and DF as well all think that there is a change afoot. My suspicion, though, I think Mary agrees with me on this, but we'll see, is that what we're likely to see is a swing back against sex positivism. You know, the idea that anything, anything sexual goes, that as long as you consent, everything is great sort of thing, which has been a dominant ideology among liberal feminism of the late 20th century and into the 21st century. I think that we are likely to see a swing back against that particular ideology. And I think it's likely to come from the elites. I think that there's, we're so saturated now with this hypersexualization that I think that the only way to rebel now is actually to be to be prudish, right? That's that's the new way of being countercultural, which is always something that's going to appeal to young rebellious people who can now see, you know, they look around at OnlyFans and porn culture and hookup culture and so on, and it's fairly obvious that it's not working very well, and it's particularly yes. not working very well for 
young women. And I think a lot of young women are starting to get wise to that. So I, I, I would not be at all surprised if within a decade or so we're seeing at elite institutions like Oxbridge and the Ivy League schools and so on, we're seeing a lot more modest dressing, many more women in particular, but also men waiting to have sex until marriage, a, a real shift towards much more traditional sexual values, I think is quite quite a likely outcome. But I also think that it's very likely that the porn industry is going to grow ever larger and larger because what's become clear is that sex sells and that there's there is basically no when you when you when you liquefy all the all the bourgeois sexual norms that used to control the the market of sexuality that there's there's basically no ceiling to it everything becomes ever more ever more sexualized ever more commercialized in a really voracious way and unless we have really serious state intervention i don't think this is going to end sorry go on Sorry, I was just saying, we can't talk. We, we put it on the cover to try and sell. <laughs> and it's worked. It's done really well. Your piece has done brilliantly. Got lots of subscriptions. So do you think, prud- it's not really prudishness, is it? But I suppose modest, what you call modest dressing will become a sort of aspirational thing because it's very obvious that if you want to have a sort of successful and happy life, being entirely sexually libertine, I would say, I may be wrong on this, is not necessarily a good way of going about that. So it's seen as a sort of... I don't like the word aspirational, but an aspirational thing to do would be to be less sexual. Is that what you're saying? I think definitely, yeah. And I think it would also fit... I mean, as what Mary was saying, one of the key arguments I make in my book, which is, seems sounds so obvious but does need to be made, is that men and women are on average quite different in terms of sexuality, in terms of behaviour and psychology and so on, and, and, and obviously the physical differences, which are much more glaring. And my argument is that the, the post-sexual revolution sexual landscape benefits men much more than it benefits women. I'd like to come back to that, but can we bring in a default friend? Because you are somebody who writes about relationships and sex. And in the piece, Mary quotes you saying you, say, you think there's a coming wave of sex negativity. Can I deduce from that that you think that it's going to go too far in the other direction? Yes, uh, <laughs> definitely. I mean... So I completely agree. The only way to be countercultural right now, you know, you noticed this when like Trump was elected, right? People were saying conservatism is the new punk. And, you know, in a sense, that was a little bit overblown then. But it is kind of right. Like if you look at all the people who were hipsters, maybe 10, 20 even years ago, they're all kind of performatively sex negative now. Mm. And that the, the culture they're rebelling against is also you know the culture that these same people pushed um and was once very shocking you know there's a if i if i may be a a little bit crass there's a there's a great punk lyric that goes you know shock the middle class take it up your punk rock you know insert here (laughs) you know that's that's we're in the we're in the reverse now um and that, that that went way too far and now again it's percolating it's percolating it's percolating and you're going to it's it's just like porn right like you get desensitized and you need to shock and the only way to shock is to be puritanical so you you push it as far as you can to upset people is it i mean at the risk of being crass myself is it that we sort of reached the limits of arousal right so that people actually aren't turned on by things anymore so therefore sexual restraint becomes more interesting i i think that's definitely possible I, I do think that's true for a certain subset of people. You know, if you if you start taking away the stimulus, suddenly other things, bec- you know, more vanilla things become more interesting. Yes. And what do you think would could be bad about sex negativity? Do you think it could mean that people are limited in their freedom? 
I think that, you know, so if you look at pretty much any of the major sex positive activists or liberal feminists, the one who are the ones who are the loudest, you know, have written uh, well-read books, they all come from evangelical backgrounds. A lot of porn stars also come from evangelical backgrounds. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think if you're too restrictive, then, you know, pe- people's natural inclination is to rebel. If you're too restrictive, if there's too much shame, then people want to assert their autonomy. If we get to a point where, like, any casual sex is filled with stigma, then there's going to be so much more shame, and that shame does not is not healthy. It's very interesting you say that about evangelicals, because I know it, it's quite a common phenomenon among past evangelical pastors, and it's known as backsliding, where you, I think because of the, the way in which, Mary, you'll know more about this, I'm sure, the way in which they regard their damnation, they think if they slip up once, then they're done, and so they enter sort of total depravity. Does that, is that something you think happens? Well, I can't speak to evangelical pastors because I, I don't personally know any. Yes. But there's, there's, there's certainly uh, might as well be hung for a sheep as for a lamb mentality yes. is very plausible. Yes. And you think, well, if your theology doesn't allow for much redemption or you, 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 you subscribe to the more sort of Calvinist understanding of, of salvation where you're either, you're either saved or you're damned and there really is no middle ground and you probably don't have a great deal of choice or, oppor- or agency yes. in the question of salvation or damnation, which I believe is, is, more, is more the tradition within, of evangelical Pro- Protestantism, then I, then I can see why if you've done something so appalling that you can't, you can't possibly still be among the saved, then you might as well just go, go all out. Yes, and I suppose something similar... DF would be in Pakistan, I think is the highest consuming country of porn in the world, which would suggest that there is an inverse relationship between religious strictness and interest in pornography and depravity. I, yeah, I mean, I firmly, I firmly believe that. And to, to Mary's point, you know, this, this idea of you, sit, you sin once, so you may as well keep sinning <clears throat> is very woven into American culture. And I actually think that a lot of older millennials continue to lead a sort of libertine lifestyle because they believe they've, you know, even if they aren't explicitly faithful people, uh, they believe, well, I've gone this far, I can't go back. So I may as well keep going far. And that's where you get these people who will like, you know, stubbornly insist that none of this is happening. You know, there's a there's a woman who I'm like constantly sparring with on Twitter who has gone as far as to argue that street walking, you know, like particularly women who are in parking lots uh, soliciting truck drivers, that that isn't degrading work. And people have to believe this because they're, you know, inherently have this very like Protestant, you know, particularly like evangelical point of view, even if they are secular. Mary I think there's, that makes me think, DF, of a conversation I had recently with... A friend, a, a millennial, I think in her mid to late 20s, who was talking to me about her desire to get married to her long-term partner and who wrote to me and said, do you have any advice on how to have a functioning marriage if if your lifestyle up until this point has been fairly sexually libertine? Is it even possible to have a, a long-term, satisfying, mutually rewarding marriage if your entire mental, emotional and sexual paradigm has been based on this sort of radically individualist, sort of atomized, pleasure-seeking, post, you know, late sexual revolution style of libertinism. Yes. And, and I, it, was, it was genuinely heartfelt and cry from the heart and somebody who, who is obviously longing for intimacy and a kind of a more permanent 
kind of style of relationship but genuinely didn't didn't believe in, in a way which which really echoed what you're describing about damnation df um this sense that you know perhaps perhaps i've sinned so much that this is no longer available to me and i thought there was something really heartbreaking there and do you think that the sexual counter-revolution will have to be led by christianity or do you think it could be something that will happen i think it will emphatically not be led by christianity right you know if the the example i cited in the piece and which i think is is actually a very powerful force pushing back against this sort of culture of sexual excess is young men who are you know, the 750,000 or thereabouts members of the NOFAP message board, you know, most of whom are, I, I, I would be willing to bet, not evangelical Christians. We should probably explain conservatives for listeners, stop. again, without trying to be crass, but NOFAP means no masturbating. Yeah, no, yeah. No, NOFAP is an online community dedicated, and it's 99% male, very often very young men, who support one another in an effort to quit addictive, compulsive masturbation to online porn. And there are over seven hundred thousand members of this message board, yes. and and some of the some of the stories and some of the suffering they recount is absolutely heartbreaking. And also some of the success stories, you know, really speak speak of people trying to re- reclaim their agency. Does it weave into the whole incel movement in that men seem to go? They either develop a sort of hatred of women because they've watched so much porn and they've developed sort of very deeply misogynistic attitudes, or they still develop a sort of self hatred of themselves for looking at it and they decide they want to stop. Well, I'm not a man, so I can't speculate on that. But I, I am aware that DF receives a lot of letters from young men. Um, so, so I wonder if this is something you could speak to. Yeah. So I'd like to push back on the perspective you offered on incels. I don't know why, but I receive probably hundreds of messages from incels. And they, they do hate women often, but not always. They more feel just completely disempowered by the way things are. They feel like, you know, it, it's it's as though they're a man without hands who has to work in a factory, right? Like that's sort of sort of a weird <laughs> metaphor, but it that's usually how they how they feel like what you know, this is how things are, and I there's something wrong with me that makes it impossible to function. The red pill movement, which is a little bit different, pushes this idea of female hypergamy, but the incels are more black pilled or in other terms, like super nihilistic. And a lot of them are, are suicidal and they think that yes. they're disposable and that their lack of success with women bolsters that point. And, you know, they have a thing they always say, L-D-A-R, lay down and rot, because that's, that's their level of self-worth. Oh, that's what they say about themselves. Yeah, I mean, they hate women, but they hate women in this very, like, it's almost like a rhetorical device, you know? It's, they, they hate women in the same way that, like, people might hate their jobs. Yes. You know, people who hate their jobs aren't necessarily, like, anti-capitalist, but they feel like slaves to a system that, you know, they have no power to. And, Louise, I'd like to, to bring you in to talk about the trans debate at the moment. And I wondered, from what you were saying, what you think the trans debate at the moment, how does that tie into what we're talking about, about thinking about sexuality and sex? I mean, it's kind of the ascendance of um, transgenderism is kind of the most amazing example of how we started off with a feminist movement that was denialist about differences, psychological differences on average between men and women. And now we've reached the point where the idea of there not being any physical differences between men and women is suddenly not just held by a weird minority, but actually incredibly dominant within certain institutions. And it's just not sustainable. I mean, I think that one of the things that we'd all agree on, me, Mary and DF, is that this backlash is coming 
against an incredibly bizarre and actually internally very incoherent form of sex positive feminism and, and the kind of feminism that deny that, that, that has embraced transgenderism and, and wants to totally sort of surmount the limits of the body and see us all as like identical regardless of our sex. That mm. backlash is coming because that ideology is, to put it really bluntly, dumb, right? And kind of everyone knows that, and it's always been a, a, an ideology that's imposed by an elite that are fairly disconnected from what most people think. But what I feel concerned about is that that backlash could look really ugly and could actually be incorporate some really, really harmful... What, you mean prejudice against trans people beating them up, that sort of stuff? Yes, yeah, so certainly against trans people, against gay people, against women. I mean, they could... It, like. There is definitely a, much as I am critical of sex positivism, and I am, there's, there are alternatives that are much worse. And I think that what's important at this point is to kind of present a feminist iteration of the critique, which is then available so that, so, so that the alternative is not just, for instance, NoFap. I mean, like, the, the NoFap yeah. community is quite interesting and there's a lot of very poignant stories on there and so on and I and I, I agree I have a lot of sympathy with the men who get caught up in this cycle of porn addiction it's also not by any means a feminist kind of space right and there isn't a lot of compassion for women there isn't a lot of attention paid to women's interests and so on and I think that that it's important at this moment to sort of be getting ahead of this and be thinking about what would a pro-woman version of yes this backlash look like and it's, it's not very interesting for women to hear about men self-pitying themselves about their masturbatory habits uh no <laughs> it, it's not attractive is it it's not sexy um mary what do you think about trans do you think that the trans debate i keep just calling it debate there's so much acrimony over it at the moment and do you think that is a sort of indication of where we're going that there's going to be a sort of a revulsion at where we've reached where we don't accept you know, everybody knows that these different sexual differences exist, but we're being sort of forced to, to, to not accept them. And, and the disgust at that or the reaction against that is going to be quite violent. Well, I'm quite sympathetic with the view that Jennifer Bilek puts forward at the 11th hour, where she argues that, in fact, the extremes of the transgender movement are not being driven by ordinary people who just feel unhappy with the sex role, and who feel that the, the sex role that they would prefer to live in doesn't accord with their body. Mm. You know, there are, plenty of, there are plenty of ordinary, perfectly ordinary people who just want to be left in peace yes. to wear the clothes that they want to wear. And Jennifer argues that, in fact, this is the the sort of radical and totalizing end of it is being driven by a set of medical and pharma- pharmaceutical interests who who are who are essentially looking to open up new markets. Yeah. By by denormalizing the idea that that, that there are physical and biological norms to humanity yes. and who are essentially treating transgenderism as an on ramp to a more general normalization of a transhumanist understanding of of the body and of our of our entitlement to intervene in our bodies such that which would in turn open up a much a much broader and in my view deeply disturbing space in which we're 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 essentially treating our bodies as something as what i call meat lego Mm. yeah as as just sort of raw 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 carriers for the for the disembodied homunculus that we can we're entitled to remodel as we see fit and 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 she she argues and i agree with her that that this is this is being driven by commercial interests because in a, in in effect once you once you start down that road you become a lifelong medical patient and a lot of people make a lot of money and that's from what you're saying I get the impression that you think the revulsion will be as much against the 
commercialised aspect of it as against the actual physical... Well, I think uh, we're, we're gearing up for a colossal battle yeah. between people who believe that there are actually... that there is such a thing as human nature yeah. and between people with a lot of money behind them who think that we, that we should scrap that idea and that we should just feel free to, to intervene medically, pharmaceutically, however, you know, technologically in our bodies as we see fit. And, and that's, that's the battle I see on the horizon. This is, this is in a sense, much larger than just how how, men, how and if men and women manage to get together and have children. In a sense, this is a battle over the nature of over what it means to be human. DF, do you agree with that? Completely. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but the idea that it's ultimately like a, a very capitalist, transhumanist project really, I mean, really resonates. You know, to me, this is the this is one of the big tragedies because. You know, I, I, I believe that there are people who are, you know, authentically trans and they, they deserve the treatment and that they that they need to, to feel comfortable with themselves. But when it's when it's cheapened, then you have people who will then react against that. And whereas before there might have been like a slim margin of error where, you know, maybe someone transitioned and that wasn't totally the right choice for them and they detransitioned and that's, you know, that's terrible, but it was a minority of people, of course, that sort of thing is going to happen. You know, now there there's going to be a reaction of even more gatekeeping that will keep the people who are totally sure and this is what's right for them out because it seemed too relaxed previously. So does it become, I mean, there's a generalized rebellion against neoliberal economics and the, the sort of world that we had in the 1990s. And is is the the revolt at the, our hypersexualized culture that ties into a, a disgust at the f- very financialized world we live in? I think that's a very plausible idea. I mean, there there have been it's it's now pretty common to mount a critique of so-called double liberalism yes you know the the blair slash cameroon doctrine that said you know we should open up our markets and we should also open up social norms and that if we do that somehow heaven on earth will manifest Mm. and you know events since have somewhat argued against that stance you know we had the 2008 crash and 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 my my sense is that the the pushback against the 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 liquefaction of social norms is coming a bit more slowly because it just takes longer for social norms to liquefy. Yes. You know, I mean, you can you can sick you can sick the hedge fund industry on a country's industrial base, and they'll go through it in a matter of decades, as we've seen. Mm. But you know, it's it's taken since the 1960s, over the course of several generations, for the idea of sexual norms to disintegrate. And I'd say when I was when I was a teenager in the 1990s, that was sort of half underway. Yes. You know, my mum my mum was still giving me the advice that she received as a teenager at that point you know remember you you don't owe a boy anything because he's had the pleasure of your company yeah. and of course at that point she was assuming that you know if I was you know, I mean what, what she meant by that was that I shouldn't feel obliged to exchange sexual favors for something as trivial as somebody paying for dinner but uh, but what she didn't realize at that point was that you, you know boys didn't take you out for dinner anymore yeah, yeah. it just didn't happen you know in as much as you ever snogged anybody it was at you know at the at the indie disco in Hemel Hempstead or you know in a bus stop or something yes. and it just it just what wasn't the same world that that she was dating in when she was a teenager and I, and I think that process has radically accelerated now you know from what I hear from friends who are who are in their 20s now it has taken several decades for us to get to that point and you think and, it's technology has and I think technology has radically accelerated that because it it 
introduces new power laws into the equation. So, you know, the, the, there are always people who are going to get laid more because mm. they're just more attractive. But that's radically accelerated in the world of online dating. You know, so because suddenly your dating pool isn't everybody in your town, in your small town, or you know, in your in your in your school. Suddenly, your dating pool is everybody who's on the date on on the several dating apps that you're signed up to, which yes. could be everybody within a fifty mile radius. And of course, the most attract and so the most attractive people is no longer just the hottest guy in your year at school. It's the hottest guy within fifty mile radius, and and that's the guy who gets all the sex. But I suppose also technology, uh, Louise, technology is hastening the the reaction against it. Yes, and I think that's the paradox of, of, of the internet, right, that it sort of accelerates everything in every direction. I've written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, and I'm deeply critical of our, our, our current dominant sexual culture. But that's not to say that I'm necessarily sort of eagerly anticipating the backlash. I think that it could potentially be quite unpleasant. And I think this is, kind of, and this is like a fundamentally conservative insight, isn't it, that there are trade-offs with every system. And we are we are we are seeing before us the the, the trade offs that come with having a um, double liberalism applied to sexuality, but equally obviously traditionalism has its trade offs as well. Um, yes. And uh, you know we can have good things, but we can't have them all at the same time. And I'd really I'd I'd love for us to be able to find a sort of harmonious balance. One of the difficulties, though, which we sort of need to reckon with, and which I'm I'm try in detail, is that men and women on average want slightly different things. There is an element of innate conflict. It's not absolute conflict, you know. I don't subscribe to the radical feminist view of the sexes sort of constantly in a kind of like Hegelian dialectic. But there are lots of ways in which we 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 share the same interests and we have to live together and we have to you know form families together and be you know like men and women have to learn to get along, right? But yeah. there's an element of there being always some degree of butting up against some very important biological differences that aren't going anywhere and I think that what we've tried to do mostly as feminists is to just deny the existence of them because they're too upsetting right like it's it, it, it's much nicer to think that actually if you just boil away all of the traditionalism all of the kind of cultural affectations that what we'll end up with is like natural harmony and I don't think that we will I think that we have to find a way of negotiating those differences in a more sustainable way your your view of the future, I think, is potentially extremely bleak, because you're you're saying that there could be a, a sort of stratified system, if I've understood you correctly, where there'd be a sort of untermensch, a porn-addled untermensch who have no aspiration to not be hypersexualized, and then there'd be a sort of smart set who think that they're very smart because they're they're not having sex all the time. I I think that one of the things that porn does in particular but the hookup culture does to a certain extent is that it makes what it norm normally for men in particular they have to work quite hard to get access to sex right this is uh, traditionally one way in which male sexuality is is channeled and limited that if for instance you have a a rule over a law that you, no one can have sex before marriage that requires a certain degree of impulse control and discipline for young men who obviously are horny and want to have sex that they have to direct their energy towards achieving marriage and you know in order to get access to this what porn does is it makes this formerly very limited resource incredibly available constantly in hyper reality you know like hd porn is designed to be far more stimulating than than than, than even real women right and we're already to some extent seeing a very sad group of women, I mean, a group of men rather, who DF was referring to a bit earlier, who are 
sucked into what is basically a very exploitative industry, which both exploits the porn stars who create the content, but also exploits the consumers. And they are a miserable group. I feel so. I feel deeply sorry for them, even though they are, of course, you know, funding this industry, which I despise. And yeah, I think that one of the things that is very, very important in the in the sort of society that we have, where access to hyperstimulation in, in the form of things like junk food and cigarettes and drugs and sex and all these things that sort of set off our set off our primal brains incredibly efficiently the ability to resist that those impulses and the, resi- the the ability to have to not be controlled by industries that are designed to um hijack our limbic systems basically is so much more important than it ever was previously and the people who are who, the people who are best placed to flourish in that kind of society are the people who are naturally very disciplined and naturally are able to resist what other people can't and, and yeah, so I, so I am a bit bleak about it. I do, I do think that there is a degree of sort of stratification based on who, and who is and who is not incredibly vulnerable to the wiles of people like the, the CEO of Bornhub. Yes. Oh, yes, I saw there was a big thing about him. I mean, we're running over our time a lot, but uh, it is very interesting. When you talk about hijacking the limbic system, you're talking about tech being so good at feeding our impulses, be it through hookup culture or pornography that even if you want to not do it you will find yourself being sort of overwhelmed by the by the tech is that what you're saying yeah i mean porn is the most amazing example of it but it's not the only example i'd say that you know junk food is also an amazing example of this product that is so perfectly designed to increase our appetite you know but porn is is that times 100 in a way i mean the 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 way that porn sites are designed for instance so that you, as soon as you log on, you're immediately bombarded with intense sexual stimuli, visual sexual stimuli, but also often audio, in a way that is totally unnatural. It, like, it, it has basically no connection to actual, like, real-life human sexuality. But it's very, very beautifully designed, in a way, to be as stimulating as possible and compulsive as possible. And clearly, for a lot of young men, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to resist. And so you, we, we do increasingly have a group of young men who don't seem to be especially motivated to go out into the world and actually seek out relationships with real women. Because why would you when you could have it in HD at home? DF, do you, do you, is this the impression you get from the people that write to you that they're desperately unhappy with hookup culture? An even bleaker thing to add to this is, so you have, you have Pornhub, right? Which is, you know, assaulting you with all sorts of interesting imagery but then you know something has exploded in the past couple of years that lets those women talk back to you and create it's no longer the audience performer relationship it's the the parasocial relationship we hear so much about the only fans content creator which is what the company itself brands these women as and a subscriber who you know even if they on a conscious surface level they know they're paying for a relationship many many people that's that's it that's their emotional intimacy as well and you have sort of like more wholesome you know like quote-unquote uh, versions of this with like twitch streamers and even like e-girls on on twitter so it's like very beautiful women on twitter who engage with their audiences and you know it's like the celebrity fan relationship on steroids with sex and it's i mean it, it's very depressing yes well, it is getting quite bleak. I mean, Mary, I, I would let's try and end on a slightly more optimistic note. I'd say that given how bleak all three of you, I think, think the current 
nature of, of sex in our society is. The possibility of a counter-revolution, while it may be scary, there may be very negative things about it, is probably desirable. I think so, yes. If there's, if there's cause for hope, it's that what I see coming in the counter-revolution, which I, expect, I fully expect to come with trade-offs, and if I'm honest, I, I think women will be at the sharp end of a lot of those trade-offs, particularly women who've, who've dug enthusiastically into the culture of sexual liberation. And, you know, should the culture abruptly U-turn and we find ourselves in a situation where women are suddenly stigmatised for being promiscuous again, then I think there will there'll, there'll be a lot of women who've who've done a lot of things who who because they were told they shouldn't be ashamed of doing a lot of things who who now suddenly find that that wasn't true and the rug has been pulled out from under them and who may feel that they've they've they've, they've sort of ruined themselves in perpetuity and i think there'll be a lot of if that happens then there'll be a lot of shame very shamed very unhappy and very angry women out there but um, have you, you wanted me to end on an optimistic note. No, um, yeah, one of the, so, so having having loaded yet more yet more misery and trade off and onto the narrative, what I what I do see as positive is the fact that young people who are turning against the culture of what what I think of as a very sort of narcissistic and sort of internet culture which encourages people not to look beyond themselves for sexual stimulus but just to find it in e-girls or the internet or you know very very sort of you know gratification oriented hookup culture and, and what, what I see is a real longing for intimacy and some really quite radical steps that people are taking to find intimacy with with other people you know against against a sort of dopamine com- heavily commercialized dopamine machine which is pushing very hard against that and, and and i see i see that as something genuinely revolutionary and quite powerful well actually i would like to end by asking you all and it's not optimistic or pessimistic it's just a rather boring catholic thought in my head will the relationship between uh, sex and fertility become more prevalent to people with the counter sexual counter revolution I don't know about generally, but but I do see a trend among women in their early twenties to, to to be talking about wanting to have children younger, you know, pushing back very hard against the culture that said, oh, you know, you should get your career established first, you should you should wait, you know, don't don't get yourself tied down with children in your early twenties. And I see I see growing numbers of again, you know, mo- mostly in the elite or relatively you know educated elite young women who are. Who are saying, well, no, actually, you know, peak fertility is is in your early twenties. Have your kids first, and then do all the things that you want to do. Yes, and there's a lot of feminine anxiety today about about yeah. having children. And I think that's going to become a very, you know, fertility politics is only going to get more bitter over the course of the next ten years. You know, as the birth rate continues to go down, and these debates about, you know, fertility either assisted or natural, or you know, when and how and where and with whom become yes. more fraught. I see that as another as an opening front in the cultural war. Louise, as, as a very new mother, I mean, I don't know, is it your first baby you, we just saw on, on the screen? Yeah, first baby, yeah. and I'm in my 20s, so I'm, I'm almost part of this trend. I'm just You're in my 20s. <laughs> but you agree that there might be a, a connection between this and a, and a sort of growing appreciation for fertility? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with Mary that fertility politics is, is, is sort of the next big issue. I mean, I'd add to that as well that there's been a growing scepticism that is entirely secular and has nothing to do with um, sexual morality per se um, mm. among a lot of women about hormonal birth control and a feeling that actually it's, it's a fairly shoddy technology that isn't very good for the body and so on. I think that's been growing for a while and that could potentially sort of join forces 
in some form with the reaction against... I thought that with the blood clot, the vaccine yeah. and the blood clot thing, and, and everyone was saying, well, the vaccine could cause it in, in women who are on the pill. And then you thought, well, that must suggest that the pill's doing something. It's not just the vaccine. Yes, the pill is really quite bad. It's not, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a very good drug. And this has kind of been rumbling among more sort of engaged women thinking about the cost of hormonal birth control. And yeah, it, it, it could... Normally, the, um, the solution that's proposed is more, is more medical research and for the pill to be improved. But you can also imagine a scenario where actually sort of opting out became an, a, a, new, a, new, a new route for people concerned about that. I think we'd better wrap it up there. But DF, thank you very much for joining us. Louise, thank you very much for joining us. And Mary, thank you very much for joining us and writing such an excellent piece.